0: Hello again, my name is Sheila Ramjug and I'm part of the ERS Monograph Editorial Board as their early career member representative. I'm currently a pulmonologist working in the Manchester region of the UK and thankfully, due to the success of the previous Pleural Disease podcast, Professor Najib Rahman has very kindly agreed to join us again to answer specific questions related to the field of of Pleural Medicine. So... To get straight to to it, and I must apologise if this feels a little like a Spanish Inquisition, we have a first question for you. Is that okay, Naj? It's a pleasure to be here, no problem. So after the recent study published in the New England Medical Journal in January of this year by Brown et al., it suggested that we shouldn't be placing pleural drains for primary spontaneous pneumothoraces. What are your thoughts with regards to this?
1: So thanks for raising this study, uh, Sheila. It's an important study and the authors should be congratulated for conducting a very difficult study in an acute setting. So I have nothing but admiration for the study they conducted. The study results appear to show that we can treat pneumothorax in primary spontaneous patients conservatively, And uh, they've conducted a good study design with a non-inferiority comparison. And it does appear on the headline to show that we should be managing everyone conservatively. Now, having said that, I think if, if one gets down to the detail of the study, there are some issues that need to be raised before we apply this study result blandly towards our patient population. And I'll just go through some of those if I will. Is that okay?
0: Oh, please do, please do.
1: Okay, so the first thing to say, I think, is that the BTS guidelines 2010, which admittedly are 10 years out of date, but nonetheless, in the bottom left corner of the pneumothorax management guideline, there is a big box that says if a patient is not symptomatic, even with a large primary pneumothorax, you can manage them conservatively. So we already were using conservative management in a subpopulation of primary pneumothorax. That's the first thing to say. What the investigators set out to prove was that it was safe to manage more patients, perhaps, with a conservative management strategy. And they had certain um, reasons, scientific, physiological, where that might make some sense. Now, if we look at their study, there's a couple of things I'd raise straight away. The first is that the primary outcome measure was a radiological outcome measure. It wasn't symptoms. It wasn't anything else. It was your X-ray fully expanded at eight weeks. And right out of the gate, I would say that's not the reason that I treat my patients with primary spontaneous pneumothorax. So I don't say, let's make sure your X-ray looks good in eight weeks. We say we want to treat your pain and breathlessness. If we then move to the symptoms that these patients had and the patient population, they were fairly asymptomatic patients. So their pain and breathlessness scores from memory were one or two out of five, which is minimally symptomatic. And therefore, they were selecting patients, albeit with a large pneumothorax, who had very few symptoms. The second issue, I think, especially to a UK and a European population, is that the smoking history and their fitness was probably a lot less than we're expecting within our population. So the average pack years in their patients was only one or two, and in the majority of patients that I treat, it's more like eight or ten in the primary pneumothorax population. So that's to do with the patient population and the outcome. I think the main issue and the issue that I have the most uh, problems with in terms of application is the consort diagram. So if you look at the number of patients that they recruited, it was in the region of 300, 400. But in order to recruit those patients, they needed to screen nearly 3000 patients. And that to me means that 90 percent of patients who present with primary pneumothorax by their own trial data, are not applicable to this study. And that gives me a particular worry. My concern is that clinicians who are recruiting to the study perhaps didn't put all of those other 90% of patients into the study because they thought an intervention was worthwhile or important. So my take from this study in summary is that there remains a small group of patients in whom we should manage them conservatively. And those are fit and well patients who might have a large pneumothorax but have few symptoms and are physiologically stable. If that is the case, then I would already manage them conservatively. However, can we then say that any patient presenting with significant symptoms or worsening pneumothorax can just be left alone? I absolutely don't think that that's the case.
0: Thank you so much for raising those obviously very valid points. And I, I think it is really important to stress that there is that box on the BTX <laughs> guidance that that is there. And, when you're saying with these small sub subgroup of patients that we can manage conservatively, how soon would you follow them up in clinic or as an outpatient?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Sheila. I, I would follow these patients up within a week to see uh-huh. if they've got worsening or resolution within a week. And then if uh, at one week's time they're looking OK, with a resolving hemothorax, I might see them two weeks later, as long as there's a degree of safety netting incorporated. So they need to be in a position where they recognize symptoms, they're with somebody at home who can bring them in, and they don't live in a remote destination. If all of those things are fulfilled and they're stable today, then I'd be happy to manage them conservatively.
0: Great, thank you. Another question now, if I may. Slightly, it's a difficult question, I suspect, but Many of the times when we're on the wards, we're unsure after a a pleural intervention has occurred, for example, when a a drain has been inserted, whether the lung could be potentially trapped. Are there any indicators to know if a lung is trapped or not?
1: So that is a great question again, because it would be a very helpful thing to know before we conduct the intervention as to whether the lung is trapped. Let's just um, spell out the field here. The majority of trapped lungs are diagnosed post-intervention by definition. So a chest tube is placed, it's patent, it's draining, and despite that the lung fails to expand, and that is a radiological diagnosis. Uh, but in that situation you you already know the lung is trapped and therefore it seems silly to say what parameters can we now apply to tell us what we already know. So the, the magic possibility in the future is knowing the lung is trapped before we conduct a pleural intervention. And there are several uh, areas of scientific research that have looked into this. The first is the use of manometry mm-hmm. in which we monitor the pleural pressure elastance curve over the period of drainage. And a persistently negative decrease in the pleural elastance is associated with trapped lung. And the physiology makes complete sense. However, in terms of the first hypothesis that I posed, it's not a great thing to recognize before intervention because pleural manometry requires intervention. So while I believe pleural manometry can confirm the diagnosis of trapped lung, it still involves an intervention for the patient. Are there clinical parameters that can help us recognize trapped lung? Again, the answer to that is no. The only one that stands out is the presence of central chest pain during aspiration. But again, that's during an intervention. There are some theories that the longer a pleural effusion has been present, the more likely lung trappage will occur. But again, that's not backed up by fantastic data. I think the one area that might be useful in the future is the use of ultrasound prior to the intervention. And there's some work from an Australian group, Salamonson was the first author, in which they looked at whether the movement of the atelectatic lung within the fluid could predict whether the lung was trapped. We've done some similar work and found that if the movement's less than two millimeters on M mode, that's the movement of the lung with the cardiac pulsation, that is highly correlated with the presence of trapped lung. And of course, that makes perfect sense. You're using the movement of the lung as a surrogate for its elasticity and therefore will it expand or not. My final point on this, Sheila, I think, is that it would be really useful to have some other biomarkers, inflammatory parameters, CT parameters, that allowed us to predict trapped lung. The CT can sometimes demonstrate trap lung before drainage but only if there's profound visceral thickening and the CT is not that good at looking at the viscera.
0: Would MR ever be useful in such a situation?
1: Yeah, so I, I think that's a good question. I think MR may be useful in a technical sense. The big problem with MR for clinicians though is that it's not very available. It's quite a lengthy and expensive process and it's simply not something that we're used to in the normal pathway. Of patients with pleural disease, or indeed many patients with thoracic disease. So, there is some decent data out there looking at MR sensitivity, for example, in the diagnostics of malignant effusion. And in fact, it is better than CT, but its impracticality or its lack of widespread uptake at the minute means that it probably isn't a clinician's tool.
0: Thank you. I really look forward to more of the ultrasound data coming out, though, because it does make total sense. It really does. And kind of along that line of questioning, it's something that has been causing a bit of confusion in some of the cardiothoracic centres where we work very closely with our um, cardiothoracic colleagues, is that some surgeons are not using suction for persistent air leak. Um, a lot of physicians were wondering, well, what should we be doing for these patients who have got a persistent air leak?
1: Okay, so that's a complex question. Let's start at the beginning. So the conservative management study that we spoke about at the beginning of this conversation it's predicated upon the idea that if you leave the lung down and folded with a hole in it, which is causing the pneumothorax, that this will allow the lung to heal more quickly. And that makes some physiological sense to me. Now, the opposite view of that theory is that if you bring the lung up and oppose the visceral pleura to the parietal pleura, that that, in complete opposition, helps to heal the visceral pleural leak, which at the end of the day is the cause of the ongoing air leak. So there's these two schools of thought, and in fact, there's no direct data to tell us. The randomized studies using suction in pneumothorax, at least primary pneumothorax, are uh, essentially dismissible. They're not of good enough quality for us to take any decent information from them. There are good quality studies in thoracic surgery where after a lobectomy and air leak, the use of digital suction has been associated with withdrawing the drain earlier and getting patients home earlier. But I would make it clear that the post lobectomy situation is really rather different to the primary pneumothorax situation. In the post lobectomy situation, we've taken relatively normal lung and put a hole in it to do the operation and then try to seal up the hole. In the pneumothorax situation, the lung has spontaneously, usually, burst itself, and those two are likely to be physiologically rather different. I think um, this is an area that we don't have data on. And actually, many people say use suction and then the x-ray looks a bit better. But does it help to repair the air leak and prevent long-term air leak? There's no direct data to support that. I personally use suction only if the pneumothorax is getting worse or the patient is getting worse and the chest tube is patent. That's when I would use suction. In the presence of ongoing air leak, I think it's reasonable to put a chest tube in monitor the amount of air coming out using digital suction, but just see how the patient behaves. We we do have data from primary pneumothorax that if you do that for a period of five to seven days, in the region of 90% will spontaneously resolve as the body repairs itself. And actually, that leads us on quite nicely to talk about why we don't like waiting. We don't like waiting because the patient's on our ward and the patient is attached to this big bottle and it may be that future directions include an ambulatory management strategy where we can send the patient home to do their waiting.
0: Sure and with that if we have a patient with a pneumothorax and we're unsure about full resolution a lot of us still clamp drains rather than removing them which particularly in secondary pneumothoraces which school are you in So um,
1: I like clamping, but in very certain and specific circumstances and in the correct clinical context. What do I mean by that? I think clamping by non-specialists on a non-specialist ward is actively dangerous. And I think we all agree on that. Um, You need people who know the implications of clamping a drain and especially would never clamp a bubbling drain, for example, Mm -hmm. in order to ensure that we don't put the patient into a tension or a subcutaneous emphysema situation. So... If there is some query about ongoing air leak, uh, I would say up to about three or four years ago, I used to clamp and do a clamping trial and do a repeat chest X-ray. My Mm. modern practice is a little different, and I should be clear, it's not based on randomised evidence, but just experience. I would use a clamping trial, and if possible, I would use ultrasound to see if there's lung apposition, because that's a much more sensitive detector for small pneumothoraces than is a chest X-ray, assuming that you can see the underlying lung and the patient doesn't have subcutaneous emphysema. The alternative that I think will be a thing for the future is the use of digital suction. So there are several companies that make digital suction devices that provide a quantification of the amount of air leak in mils per minute, and you can apply a bit of gentle suction in order to measure the air leak, and when that air leak is persist- zero, I would then take the drain out without having to clamp.
0: And with the ultrasound of the lung, looking for apposition, would you use three different points or uh, one single point?
1: I, I, that's uh, Yeah, I, I mean, I think you'd be guided by the chest x-ray. So sure. I presume this is in the situation where the x-ray shows a possible small apical pneumothorax. If there's dehiscence of the lung along the entire lateral border, there's no point doing an ultrasound or indeed clamping the chest tube because you know there's an ongoing pneumothorax. So I would probably do it in a couple of spaces apically usually.
0: Thank you. This was a a very interesting question. Um, Apparently, some of our cardiothoracic colleagues feel that empyema referrals are increasing as pulmonologists are not intervening or draining these empyemas enough. I was wondering what your thoughts might be with regards to this.
1: I mean, that would be a concern. Uh, we do know that lack of drainage of pleural infection early in the treatment course and delay of treatment is associated with higher poor outcomes, including requiring thoracic surgery. So if that's a, a real effect, it's a concerning effect. I think it's difficult to unpick this. We also know that in the United States and Canada, pleural infection is increasing in incidents significantly we don't know why but it is and colleagues in Bristol David Arnold and Nick Maskell are soon I think to publish work showing exactly the same effect in the UK so what our surgical colleagues may be reporting is simply an increase in incidence in general if we swing it the other way around are there pleural fluid collections that are infected that we as physicians should not drain and send directly to surgery and I think there are a very small number of such cases If you're convinced on imaging, CT and ultrasound, that it isn't fluid anymore, but it's a rind of pleural thickening that is infected, then I think it's reasonable to go straight to surgery. The one area that I disagree with most people is if people see heavily septated collections, they might then assume that their drainage strategy will not work. And I don't agree with that. So any collection that we can put a tube into, we will always try and drain it. If it doesn't initially drain because it's very septated, we have access to TPA DNAs. And so there's a more worked up strategy than sending it straight to surgery.
0: And would a heavily septated collection guide you to a larger bore drain or a surgical drain rather than um, a, a Seldinger technique?
1: Yeah, so uh, it specifically would not. And the reason is that the only reason to use a wider ball drain is because the increasing radius allows increasing flow. The argument you would have to make is that the septated fluid is thicker in some way. And we know from retrospective data that a 12 French tube is perfectly adequate to treat even, frankly, purulent fluid. So, no, it would not. I think the most you could say is that if you disrupted the septations a little with your finger, which, by the way, you can do with a Seldinger wire. Um, that's the only argument I can think of. But we do not upscale chest strains. We regard a 12 French strain for pleural infection as perfectly adequate.
0: Thank you. Now, the other question related to this area is should the rapid score be used by all hospitals?
1: OK, well, um, I should declare a conflict of interest since I published the rapid score. Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, so should it, should it be used by all hospitals? Flattering question. My answer at the minute is no. And the reason is that the current study, which I hope will publish soon, called the pilot study, was the validation study for the rapid score. Once that's published in a peer-reviewed journal, I think it then could be used potentially. Let me explain why. I think if science has not been peer-reviewed, then it's simply hearsay. And it needs peer review in order for us to understand that it's reliable and it's been Stress tested to some degree, so until we publish that paper it 's a definite no now that paper i 've presented on it many times. The pilot study was deeply positive and showed a huge difference between low and high rapid score in terms of mortality, two percent versus fifty percent. So should we then use it? well, it works the The next question is what do you do with the information, and I think that 's the challenge so If you had a patient with a low rapid score, would you treat them any differently to a patient with a high rapid score? One can make the argument that perhaps the high rapid score patient should transition to interventions such as TPA, DNAs or surgery much faster. But in this area, we're in a desert. We have no data. So could it be used to risk stratify? Yes. But risk stratification tools are only useful if it alters your behavior. And at the minute, that's the piece that we haven't filled.
0: Okay, so. With regards to pleuridesis, a question that has come that I've come across a few times now. In some countries, when there is no frank malignancy and it's the first presentation of a patient with a unilateral effusion, sometimes pleuridesis is administered at this point. I was wondering what your opinions may be with regards to this.
1: Yeah, so I think this is a tricky area. Um, I would not and the reason I would not is because I think our understanding of the diagnostic process in pleural disease is much better than it used to be. I think that's probably quite old school practice, which is if the fluid doesn't show anything, then let's just pleuritis and assume. Uh, if one does that, then I think one runs the risk of not diagnosing some of the less common pleural diseases, such as inflammation, isinophytic vasculitis, but also missing important things such as TB, and indeed missing about 40% of malignancy, which you can't characterize and therefore can't decide on molecular treatment or, or triage treatment. So in general, I would not. The one exception I think is if the patient is of, let's say, poor performance status if their one problem is a recurrent large effusion that you can't diagnose, I think pleuridesis then is a pragmatic way to stop the poor patient coming in and out of hospital, and that's not unreasonable. But in general, I wouldn't advocate this. The only other area where it is possible to advocate is if one is doing a thoracoscopy and the thoracoscopic appearances are very suggestive of malignancy, then I would pleurodesis without having the biopsy results. Secondly, if I'm doing a thoracoscopy on a patient in whom they have no other diagnostic options. So let's say a person in their mid-80s who was good enough for a thoracoscopy but not for surgery, and the effusion is their major issue, I will take biopsies and I will happily talcleridize them if that's what the patient wants to stop coming back into hospital.
0: That's very helpful. Thank you. And along the pleurodesis route, there was, I believe, an Australian study, the AMPL2 trial published in 2016 that suggested daily IPC drainage was needed for, or not needed, but was suggested as a useful route for good pleurodesis. We were wondering, particularly given the constraints we have in the community sometimes providing this service, uh, what are your thoughts with regards to this? or your experience?
1: So I think we now have two randomized studies, don't we? ASAP with the was Momin Wahidi study. That's the first study that looked at frequency of drainage. And that demonstrated the same that Ampul Two then demonstrated, which was once again, daily drainage is associated with a higher pleuridesis success rate than as needed drainage. So I think we're convinced that it works. So draining every day is clearly better if you're trying to achieve a pleuridesis. Now, the larger question is why did you put the indwelling catheter in to start with? And if you put it in to do a pleuridesis, well, actually, there are better ways of doing pleuridesis. I'll come back to that. Largely, we put it in in order to relieve symptoms. And so it depends on the philosophy of treatment. Uh, My problem with daily drainage is if we put the catheter in to relieve symptoms and the patient's symptoms are perfectly well handled by drainage twice a week, I'm not clear that there's a good reason to go in and drain every day just to achieve a technical pleurodesis. It may enable us to remove the tube a bit more often, but if the patient's happy with draining every couple of days, then I don't really see a reason to upscale to daily drainage because it is an imposition on patient's life to have to drain for an hour every day. That's significant, and I don't think we should underestimate that. The second point I would make is, we also now have the IPC Plus study that tells us that putting talc into the chest is very effective in increasing the pleuridesis rate. But if I just take a pause for a second, if we look at all of the studies that have either drained daily or used talc in the IPC, the randomized studies, they increase the pleuridesis rate from in the region of 20% to in the region of 45%. And an inpatient talc pleuridesis in the randomized studies has a success rate of between 70 and 80%. So I don't believe that any of these are a substitute for inpatient pleuridesis. I think it's a happy corollary of draining regularly. And if your patient really wants to get rid of the drain, the IPC that is, I would make sure their lung is expanded, give them talc, and then drain them daily for a week. That's the most I would do, but it it's entirely dependent on the patient's wishes.
0: That's really helpful, actually. Changing tact very slightly about um, patients, and I'm sure we've all clinically been in this situation where we're presented with a patient where their history uh, points towards a possible diagnosis of mesothelioma, but... All imaging is potentially inconclusive and they're too unwell for a medical thoroscopy. Cytology is negative, fluid, cy- fluid, sorry, I should say, cytology is negative. I was wondering, are there any other indicators we could use?
1: Um, so, yeah, this is a often difficult diagnostic group, isn't it? And it's not helped by the fact that mesothelioma is not the commonest cancer in the world. And there's a great variability for good reasons where, our histopathology colleagues find it difficult to make the diagnosis. It's a, it's a really tricky diagnosis to make sometimes. So I think there's lots of barriers in our way and these patients are very familiar. I think if they're old and frail, that it's challenging to then think about doing multiple biopsies. But actually, even if you do multiple biopsies, sometimes you'll simply get fibrosis back and they may be heading towards a diagnosis of what we call desmoplastic mesothelioma, which is essentially mesothelioma as a malignancy driving a fibrotic reaction. And biopsies always come back showing fibrosis. So what do we do in these situations? Well, there's two options. One is to turn towards biomarkers, and we'll talk about biochemical biomarkers and then radiological ones and the other is follow-up so the biochemical biomarkers that have been used include serum mesothelin and that's a protein which has been well studied in the literature the summary of that is that it's a good rule out test but not a good rule in test so if it's low you can probably say this is unlikely to be mesothelioma if it's high it doesn't really mean anything the other serum biomarkers such as uh, fibrillin three have not been shown to be robust, and so I wouldn't use them. So the most I'd use is a mesothelium, but only as a rule out test. The radiological biomarkers, I think, are important, ultrasound and CT. And if the CT looks malignant, you might even want to do a PET CT to um, find areas of pleural uptake that you could then biopsy, or it could add weight to your clinical diagnosis. And at that point, I might then make a clinical diagnosis of mesothelioma. The alternative to all of that is, of course, to do follow up. And I think that would be my recommendation. What you would be looking for there is progression of pleural thickening or any clear evidence of invasion into the subpleural fat or the chest wall, which can only really be due to, well, I was going to say mesothelioma, can only be due to malignancy. The one caveat here is if you've conducted a talc pleuridesis, suitable to your last question, then talc pleuridesis causes two problems. It causes pleural thickening that can progress, that looks like malignancy. And on a PET CT scan, it comes up hot for about 20 years. So we have a problem if we've done that.
0: Okay. Gosh, I didn't realise it would be as hot uh, hot for as long as 20 years.
1: Uh, It's not not known why, actually, Sheila. It's not clear. But if you talc somebody and then see PET positivity five years later, it's probably the talc.
0: Okay. And one of the final questions, and this was more out of interest, I've got to admit. When someone who has sadly passed away from mesothelioma is um, discussed at the coroners, I believe that (laughs) they always look at fibre count rather than exposure history. And I was wondering if you knew why this was done and if potentially this is something that should change in the future.
1: Yeah. So um, I think it's variable according to pathologists. That's the first thing to say. I think exposure histories are unreliable to some extent. And we do recognize that 10% of people with mesothelioma have no exposure history, and yet you can find asbestos in their lung. And then finally, uh, we have the single fiber theory in mesothelioma, such that one fiber of asbestos could technically cause it. And therefore, the correlation between exposure and disease is not entirely linear. Now, having said that, I think it's like anything else. It adds weight to the diagnosis. If the lungs and the pleura specifically are full of asbestos fiber or granules, Then that does push us towards increasing the risk, the pretest probability, if you like, that this is mesothelioma. Now, having said that, the pathological diagnosis in, for example, desmoplastic mesothelioma is then based upon the macroscopic appearance what uh, the tumor looks like. Is it encroaching upon the lung? Is it invading the chest wall? And then histology to back it up. I don't know whether fiber counts will come in and out of fashion or not in the old days we would be asked to do biopsies and send them for fiber counts in live patients but we definitely don't do that anymore
0: i'm glad that's something i'm very glad thank you again honestly we really appreciate your time and i think answering these questions have been incredibly helpful particularly people who are practicing in on a daily basis we really look forward to hearing from you as well in the near future particularly with the publications I'm afraid that this brings us to the end of the podcast, and we really hope that you've enjoyed this, and that you also really enjoy the readily available pleural disease monograph. This was Sheila Ramdrug interviewing Najib Rahman. Thank you again for listening.